Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by two of our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Damon Linker is off this week, and we are delighted to welcome back David Priest, COO of the Law Fair, uh, who will be sitting in for Damon. And our special guest this week is Elliot Cohn, Dean of the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. He has served in a variety of academic and government roles, including counselor to the Secretary of State, and we are thrilled uh, that you could all be here, uh, and in particular, Elliot, your first time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We learned this week that uh, intelligence agencies believe that Russia has been paying bounties to the Taliban to kill Americans in Afghanistan. Uh, the president has uh, denied this. He has suggested this is a hoax, that uh, it that, that he was never briefed. Um, as usual, his spokespeople are tiptoeing around this, uh, playing word games such as he was never personally briefed, which may mean that it wasn't, the information was not spoon fed orally, but uh, several sources say that the information was in the president's daily brief. Um, David, you. Uh, are an expert on the PDB because you used to brief presidents on security matters. You were with the CIA. Um, tell us a little bit about um, the the nature of PDBs. I, I know the president gets it. There's been a lot in the press about whether he actually reads it. A lot of people think he doesn't. He doesn't read, and therefore, if, if it's in the PDB, it's not necessarily going to come to his attention. Um, but um, but what I, I'm wondering if you can tell us how many other people in the U.S. government would know about the contents of a PDB. Well, sure, and thank you. Uh, first, a very brief description of the PDB to set the stage. The President's Daily Brief has been around in one form or another since the 1960s, and it is personally tailored to whoever occupies the Oval Office. That is, it is designed to appeal to the learning style and the preferences of the sitting president. That means that it can be longer or shorter. It can have wide margins or narrow margins. It can have large font or lots of pictures, depending on the president and how they prefer to take information. Over the course of the PDB across all of the presidents since President Kennedy, who received the predecessor document, and then the renamed President's Daily Brief, starting with Lyndon Johnson, all presidents appear to have either read it, in some cases religiously, every morning to start their day, or discussed it with senior advisors or intelligence community briefers every day. The one exception that's still unclear uh, through all the research I did on it for my first book was Richard Nixon, who at a minimum had extensive conversations with Henry Kissinger every day anyway, and Dr. Kissinger was getting the book. So he was still getting the messages. 
from the community. It contains assessments of foreign policy developments to help the president get ahead of threats or to help the president take advantage of foreign policy opportunities. It is designed for the president, but every president has allowed others to see it. At its minimum, just one or two others, most often a handful of others, including the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and almost always in recent decades, others, including the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Homeland Security Secretary, the Treasury Secretary, and sometimes Deputy Secretaries as well, depending on the President. The widest dissemination was with the last president. President Obama expanded it to something around or above 40 recipients because he wanted to include the right people in conversations and wanted to make sure they all had the same information. We don't know with this president what the dissemination list looks like. It's not classified, but it has not been publicly released. But it is safe to say that at a minimum, the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and the Homeland Security Secretary get it. It's a good bet that the Attorney General, the FBI Director, and several other officials in town get it, at least because we know Jared Kushner was once getting it, and it would make sense that other senior officials responsible for national security would get it if he was once getting it. Does that mean, we have been told by the press that people with access to the PDB have verified that this information was in it. Does it mean that one of those people is the one who um, leaked it, or could it have been staff? Would they have seen it? It could be a number of options here, and I, I hate playing you know, chase the leaker, but it could be a recipient of the president's daily brief. In some White Houses and in some other briefing locations, uh, the security of the PDB has been a little looser than others. In the Reagan administration, there was a senior official who was making copies of the PDB and taking them home to read at his leisure and storing the old copies in his garage. The National Security Advisor discovered that and put an end to it very quickly, but other presidents have had a much tighter control. We don't know where it is on the scale here. For example, some senior officials who get it will insist that their chief of staff or their deputy sit in on the briefings, and then it's up to the director of national intelligence in coordination with the national security advisor and the president to decide whether they say no or whether they say, yes, you can have additional people sit in. So the people who actually see it on the receiving end can vary widely. But you have to remember, a lot of people are also involved in the production of it. And then you also have to remember that at least in this case, reporting suggests that the intelligence that went into the president's daily brief also went into other finished intelligence products. It was also briefed in the field to commanders in Afghanistan. It was also briefed to coalition partners. And it would be easy for somebody to say, oh, I saw that intelligence report because it may have been similar to what was in the PDB and maybe nail down the date just by talking to colleagues. It doesn't really narrow down the search that much that it was in the PDB unless it was only in the PDB, and we have not seen indications of that. Elliot, one of the reasons uh, it's been suggested that this was included in the PDB was because it was known that the president intended to speak with Putin 
And we've also heard that he spoke to Putin something like five times over a two-week period. Um, what do you make of that? Is that normal uh, for, for presidents to speak to um, Russian leaders that frequently or even foreign leaders in general? Or do you have any thoughts about that? So, well, I, I guess the first thing that I would say is that, um, you know, I, I would expect the intelligence community to put something like that into the PDB, no matter what. It's obviously a big deal if some if a foreign government is uh, putting bounties on the heads of American soldiers. Um, it is uh, not uh, normal to have that level of communication, I think, with uh, uh, the president of Russia, particularly at a point where Russia is an important country, but not nearly as important as it was during the Cold War. And, and for sure, I think we know that the president has a pretty unhealthy relationship with Russia. I think that when you look at everything going all the way back, um, there is something that's pretty fishy about it. Uh, we, we will probably figure that out after the Trump administration is over, uh, when their records get released, when people write uh, memoirs and, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and what exactly the nature of that relationship is, we really, I think, won't know until then. What we do, what we do know is it's odd. Uh, it's probably not in the national interests of the United States. Um, and it's doing damage. One of the things that, um, that Trump has said numerous times uh, is that he's boasted about his wonderful relationship with Putin. Uh, that, you know, it's similar to what he does about China. You know, he says, I've been so tough on China. Nobody's been tougher on China, but, oh, I love Xi. Xi and I get along great. We have fabulous friendship. Similarly, he does that with Putin. He says, nobody's been tougher on Russia than, than my administration. What with the sanctions, he says. Um, uh, but, but Putin and I have a wonderful relationship and that's good for the world. He says, again, sort of hearkening back to the era when, when Russia was the Soviet Union and when it was exceedingly important to, to a lot, in a lot of people's eyes that, that we be on at least reasonable speaking terms. Um, what do you make Elliot of our relationship with Putin and so, with Russia? So, uh, you know, I think with Trump, uh, the, the larger context is uh, that he views himself as a tough guy. And uh, this is sort of the, the drama of his ego playing out that he, he thinks he makes deals tough guy to tough guy. It's why he likes not only Putin, uh, but Xi Jinping, uh, um, President Duterte in uh, the Philippines, uh, Tayyip Erdogan. I mean, he's got an affinity for, uh, for these kinds of characters because he would somehow like to think of himself uh, in in the same way, you know, it's clear that the U.S.-Russian relationship is um, is is a particularly difficult one now because even though Trump says all those things, the truth is that the countries are, are at odds, and our actual policy is at odds. Say in places like Libya, um, in some ways in uh, in Syria, Trump's command of of the U.S. government is so deficient that I'm not sure he fully appreciates that. Uh, and so it's this just very odd situation where the president has one set of relationships, which he thinks, I suppose, are yielding something. The bureaucracy actually has a very different set of views. And on a lot of substance, the bureaucracy, which is actually more closely aligned with the congressional view, tends to win. Um, 
Bill, the um, the U.S. apparently informed the U.K. about this intelligence, uh, but not Germany, which is curious considering that um, they both nations have uh, forces in Afghanistan, but Germany has more than than Great Britain. Uh, but we didn't tell Germany. Do you think that might this might have something to do with the fact that uh, Trump has contempt for uh, Angela Merkel and uh, is fond of uh, of Boris Johnson? It has everything to do with it. <laughs> uh, this is the this is the complete personalization of foreign policy, uh, and you know what Elliot just talked about is part of that personalization. But it's also the case that the president filters his policies uh, towards particular countries through his attitudes towards the leaders of those countries. Uh, and in the, ca- in the case of Germany, uh, there's also an intense policy disagreement. The president has been very critical of the Germans, not only for not meeting the 2% uh, defense spending target, but not even pretending to do so in the near future. Uh, and I'm sure he holds the chancellor personally responsible. I have to believe that the decision to withdraw nearly 10,000 forces from Germany uh, was made in the mistaken view that we were punishing the Germans by doing that. Linda, it's it's been a long time since the end of the Cold War since the Berlin Wall came down, you could make a case that uh, it's time to reevaluate some of the um, troop deployments. Maybe it's no longer ideal to have them in Germany. Um, But has the president made anything like a case for withdrawing troops? Absolutely not. And I mean, it would be one thing if he was deploying them, uh, and there has been some suggestion maybe they'll move to Poland. Uh, that would be one thing, but um, or somewhere else where they might, again, uh, ha- act as some sort of check on a Russian uh, intentions and expansionism. But, you know, I, I just want to get back to how absolutely shocking this story is. I mean, we've got a story about American troops being targeted, uh, bounties put on their head, and some a substantiation that those bounties paid off and that Americans actually died at the hand of Taliban who were paid off by the Russian GRU through a middleman. Can you imagine any other president where a story like this would not shake the administration to its core? I mean, one cannot fathom what the response would have been had a similar story emerged during the Obama administration or the Bush administration or any administration. I I just find this story so earth shattering. And yet, because there is so much out there and Trump does so much that is inexplicable and contrary to the interests of the United States, it's just one more. And so I don't think it's really reverberating in the way that it should. I mean, this is perhaps the single most shocking story to come out during the Trump tenure. I I just cannot imagine uh, something much worse than the president ignoring American troops being targeted and paid off uh, by 
uh, Russia. I just can't imagine anything worse. And not just the substance of the allegations, Linda, but what's shocking to me is putting aside the president's putting aside the president's texts claiming that this is all a hoax, a hoax, which seems unlikely with the reporting to this point. The fact that the national security advisor, the persons whose two primary roles are to ensure that the president gets the information he needs to make national security decisions and to run the interagency policy formation and execution process. Those are the main two roles. The very person doing that is out there saying, well, if the intelligence community briefer didn't highlight it for him in one of the rare oral briefings of the PDB that he deigns to take, well, then it's her fault. I'm sorry, sir, but your job as national security advisor is to ensure that the president gets the information he reads. And if you read the president's daily brief and you saw this, and you knew that he was not seeing the intelligence community briefer regularly enough to be briefed on everything that's in the PDB every day, then the responsibility is squarely on your shoulders. Normal administrations would fire this national security advisor for that kind of lapse of judgment and dereliction of duty. So um, I I am the the last person to to defend Donald Trump, uh, but perhaps I, I think there's a little bit more that we need and to understand why he might have done this. The first thing, just on the national security advisor, this is the least forceful national security advisor that Trump has had. And I think that's deliberate. He's chosen somebody who's not a very strong figure. You know, on the sharing of the intelligence with the UK, that might just have to do with the nature of the intelligence. We have arrangements with the UK that are really unlike those we have with any other country than, say, maybe Australia um, uh, and possibly Canada. Okay. Uh, but, but on why he would have ignored this, which I suspect he did, um, is I think it goes to his view of international affairs, was, which is, well, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough game. And uh, this is somebody who doesn't particularly have uh, any empathy. So it's not like he's really feeling for the families, I believe, of American soldiers. And it's also important to remember, you know, it's personal in a different way, too. If you ask, why would the Russians do something like this? I mean, this is, now they think they can get away with it, but really, what is what is the point? You know, the United States and uh, Russia have a real history in Afghanistan. We, uh, some of David's former colleagues, uh, put a great deal of effort and uh, ingenuity and success into getting a lot of Russian soldiers killed in Afghanistan. And uh, the GRU, uh, the Russian military intelligence, they believe in payback. And um, I think that's part of what's going on here. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some kind of lizard level, Trump understands that it doesn't particularly bother him. And so he he just kind of brushes, brushes that aside. Like I said, that's not to excuse any of this. It really isn't. But it's um, I think it's explicable in terms of his worldview. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's probably right, and uh, and then of course layered over that is the fact that he does have this peculiar tropism toward autocrats of various kinds, and he seems allergic to our allies that he you know firmly believes have been ripping us off for decades. Um, so he he's you know it's hard to think with the exception of Israel and. Um, 
and the Philippines, of which are democracies, the Philippines sort of. Um, but it's hard to think of any other ally, traditional ally that we've that we have improved relationships with under Trump, um, and uh, they, they've all been damaged. But his, um, but 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 he sucks up. Let's face it, to uh, to Putin and Xi and Kim Jong Un and uh, and Duterte, and who I guess for these purposes can be in two different categories, but. Um, uh, but that that's also an element of it. He's 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 excited in the presence of strong men. He gets excited. He he says things to, about Kim Jong Un, like you know, afterwards saying, "I wish my people would stand to attention the way his people do for him." Wow, you know that sort of thing. I mean, he that that's part of his uh, lizard brain, if you will. To use your phrase, Elliot. <laughs> you know, I, one other thing I think to remember in terms of the Putin relationship, quite apart from whatever unsavory business dealings or blackmail, whatever uh, might be out there. Uh, again, let's look at it from the other side's point of view. Vladimir Putin is a trained KGB case officer. So uh, I th suspect that uh, when he goes into those meetings, he is thinking the way a case officer thinks about how to manipulate an individual who, let's face it, completely reveals his psyche in his Twitter feed. Right. I mean, right? So he, uh, you, there are no secrets to what Donald Trump is thinking and how he views the world. So it, it's entirely conceivable to me that, among other things, Putin is just a lot more skilled at manipulating uh, the president than a lot of other foreign leaders, although some of them have gotten to be pretty good, too. I just have one more angle, I, and it's a pretty obvious one that I'd like to throw into the pot, and that is that the president is allergic to anything, including intelligence, uh, that that tends to call his legitimacy and the legitimacy of the 2016 election into doubt, uh, and. One of his reactions to this latest episode was not just that it's a hoax, but it was a hoax designed to discredit the Republican Party and him. Uh, and I suspect very strongly that it's no accident, comrades, that he wasn't orally briefed on this topic, that neither, uh, that neither the CIA briefer uh, nor the National Security advisor chose to underscore it, namely that it's been it's been made very clear to them, talk about tailoring intelligence uh, to to the president, uh, that the likely consequence of bringing up issues having to do with Russia and Putin will be explosive rejection by the president and anger directed against those who have the temerity to include that in an oral briefing. And yeah. I'll bet that that kind of aversion to direct conflict with the president was playing a significant role in this entire episode. Well, it, 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 one sec, Linda. If, if you're right, Bill, then um, Putin was silly not to just roll in and take the Baltic nations while he had the opportunity because Trump would have declared that the news was just intended to hurt him. 
<laughs> well, you know, I mean, that that's sort of a sad fact, uh, Mona. But the other thing is that it does, of course, discredit uh, Republicans, not just Trump, but Republicans. And there is a way to fix at least that part. That is, if Republicans uh, in Congress would be loud and vociferous in their condemnations of uh, this story and and uh, insisting that we get to the bottom of it and insisting that there was really something wrong with this not rising to the level that it was taken seriously in the White House and by the president. I mean, it's really an easy thing for Republicans to fix, to at least uh, rescue their own reputations uh, and not tie themselves so closely to Trump. And we may be seeing a little bit more, you know, sticking the toe in the water to be critical because I think Republicans are looking at the polling data. Uh, they're looking at their own fortunes. You know, Mitch McConnell, if he does survive uh, his challenge uh, this election year, uh, he's looking at the fact that he may be the minority leader uh, in the next Congress and, and not the majority leader. So one can hope that we might see something out of some Republicans on this issue. Too late, too late. But uh, but yeah, you're you're right, Linda. There's there's there are signs of independence, but that's only because Trump is falling below forty percent. So naturally, they're <laughs> fleeing. But all right, let us talk a little bit now about the possibility of a coming crisis vis-a-vis -vis the election, a crisis of legitimacy. Um, I'm going to give you the lead role, Bill, because you wrote a column about this this week. Um, you cited uh, data from the voter study group that found fifty-seven percent of Democrats say it would be appropriate for a Democrat to call for a do-over election if uh, there was a charge of interference by a foreign government. And 29% of Republicans said it would be appropriate for President Trump to refuse to leave office based on claims of illegal voting in the 2020 election. So that's sort of the contours of what we're facing. What what needs, what's the nature of the problem? What needs to happen? Well, the, the clearest problem that we have right now, as I argued in the column, is that whatever happens between now and November, a record share of ballots will be cast by mail rather than directly and in person. Uh, and I say that because doing so requires no, no controversial change in law. Uh, 29 states already have uh, no excuses absentee ballots, which is the functional equivalent of a universal, potentially universal mail-in system. Those 29 states, and I checked, include every single contested state. Uh, and you know, and if you look at what what has already happened in states like Pennsylvania and Kentucky, uh, we know that this torrent of mail-in ballots will substantially delay the vote count. Uh, many people have the fear, which I share, uh, that uh, the president who has missed no opportunity to discredit mail-in ballots as a fount of fraud will seize on that delay uh, to claim that the election is being fraudulently determined and victory is being snatched away from him. 
this is a truly terrifying prospect. And I'm not the only one who's terrified, I can tell you. Uh, and so the rest of the column goes on to sketch the steps that would not eliminate this problem, but would tend to mitigate it, uh, both providing ample opportunities to vote directly, because we, as we saw in Kentucky and Pennsylvania, uh, many people wanted to vote directly and stood on very long lines in order to do so. We have to do everything we can to shorten those lines, which means more, not fewer polling places. And at the same time, we need to set up a system uh, that minimizes the time between uh, the close of the actual polling places on the one hand and a final count of the mail-in ballots on the other. Uh, the, fact, the fact that the outcome, for example, of the, of the Kentucky primary uh, you know, uh, to, for the Democratic nominee for Senate, that took a full week to determine. Uh, you know, neither Ms. McGrath nor Mr. Cooper knew until June 30th who had won and who had lost, and the election was on the 23rd. This is really, this is a formula for political crisis and perhaps a legitimacy crisis if we allow that to happen in November. So that, in brief, is what I said in my in my column. Bill, let me follow up on that if I can. Um, I, I agree with what you've said. We're looking at something that we certainly haven't experienced in recent history. But to me, a delay of one week in knowing the results of a particular state or maybe even all of the states is unfortunate but manageable. I'm much more worried about what happens on January 6th when Congress meets to count the electoral votes and if we have a repeat of the situation like 1876, when states submitted different bodies of electoral votes from different parts of the state government, each claiming to be the official electoral vote of the state, throwing the government into a crisis and almost delaying the inauguration of the president as mandated by the Constitution and laws of the United States. I don't mind a week delay, but if there's a two-month delay we have a true crisis on our hands. Um, Elliot, let me bring you in here and ask you about the uh, another wrinkle. The, the, there's a potential for faithless electors too, which I don't think has ever really been settled. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I, I would not consider myself an expert on, uh, on these issues. I, the Again, maybe I'm being Pollyannish, uh, and I can I can see all sorts of nightmarish possibilities. But there's I somehow have this feeling that we've passed through a watershed over the summer in terms of public attitudes towards this president. Uh, you know, a real kind of turning of a large part of certainly the independent vote against him, and I I wonder if this may not end up being decided by the fact that the, the margins will be pretty pronounced, even in some of the swing states, uh, so that, you know, we're, we're going to know what the outcome is going to be in uh, uh, the blue states and then some of the red states. So this is going to come down to, uh, once again, to a few uh, few swing states. And I, I won't be surprised if it turns out that it just ends up being a lot easier than uh, we might fear. I think these apprehensions are reasonable and, you know, it should give us a, um, something to think about 
uh, for the immediate future and for the more distant future. But I just somehow have this feeling that opinion has really turned against Trump in a pretty large way. Linda, it makes me nervous when somebody says that because I'm <laughs> because I'm a little superstitious. <laughs> we're we're just worry warts. Just admit it. It's, it's, just it's a it's, little. Yeah, you know, like we're moms. Way. You know, moms are worry warts. We worry about everything. But I. But, I I, I dads are too. Dads yeah. are too. Well, I, I don't disagree with you, Mona. Uh, my, my worry is this administration has used the courts pretty effectively uh, in, you know, challenging things they don't like. And so I worry that we might have a kind of redux of, you know, waiting to have the Supreme Court end up weighing in uh, if there are states where the election was close. Now, you may be right, you know, uh, those of you who think that it's going to be a, a landslide and that Biden's going to win uh, big, uh, but if he doesn't, and particularly if he doesn't uh, in some of those contested states that ended up giving a victory to Trump last time, um, I worry that we're going to again see this thrown uh, into a massive delay and uh, trying to get the courts involved. And that's what worries me most of all. And, you know, it's um, there's no question that Trump himself is going to delegitimize uh, this election because I think he is pretty clear that he's not doing well. And so he's laying the groundwork now uh, that the system is rigged and it will be to, you know, his advantage to cry foul uh, if he doesn't win. And so, uh, you know, that that is going to be the biggest problem going forward, because this is, you know, I'm not enough of an historian to know if that's ever happened in the past before, uh, but it certainly never happened in quite uh, the way that I think Trump will try to manipulate it this time around. I, I, you know, I should stipulate, I'm glad that the four of you are worrying about it. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're much more likely to recommend courses of action that might help uh, prevent these various uh, horrible outcomes. And there are actually, there are groups of people who are in fact hard at work and thinking through uh, different things that might happen in the event of a contested uh, uh, outcome. And that that's really a good thing. But I, I, I you know, I think people like us uh, who really have abhorred uh, this, the candidate and then the president and are horrified at what he's done uh, to the country and to the government and in some measure to the world, we have to remind ourselves we, we were all traumatized by the fact that he got elected in the first place. Um, and I think a lot of us are still reacting to that, the trauma of that moment when, uh, you know, my wife elbowed me in the ribs and said, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and I, I, I reached uh, for my bottle of scotch. At that right. Moment, right. Huh. I mean, right. we, we all remember that trauma and, you know, we need to correct a little bit, I think, for that. Well, uh, yes. Well, it's, um, it, it's always good to be, I guess I'm just saying, I, I'm always afraid of, um, of overconfidence. Like, you know, the, the that, that, that old expression, you should dance like nobody's watching and run like you're 10 points behind and, um, and so that's, that's all, I mean, it was just kind of a, a superstitious thing, but, um, but 
Bill, can I just bring you in here on the topic of um, of the the swing states? Now, Texas didn't used to be considered a swing state. Now it's kind of verging into possible swing territory. And um, where do we stand there? Because the uh, Texas Attorney General has said that fear of COVID is not a legitimate excuse for asking for uh, a a mail-in ballot or an absentee ballot, and that his office would prosecute people for vote fraud if they use a mail-in ballot in an inappropriate manner. Well, that's not not entirely surprising. Uh, And I'm going to have to take a look at Texas law uh, to see whether the attorney general is on solid ground in in making that threat. Mm. Uh, but more ge- and I'm not sure that he is. Uh, yeah. But more generally, uh, the number of quote unquote swing states is going to be substantially larger in this election than we're accustomed to. Uh, yes. Florida's always always a swing state. Uh, Georgia hasn't been, but now is. Texas hasn't been, but maybe. I'm still a bit skeptical on that front. Uh, Arizona hasn't been, but clearly now now is. Iowa and Ohio weren't in 2016, but if you believe multiple surveys, they are this time. I could go on. In other words, we're accustomed to the battle being fought in half a dozen states. I think it may be twice that many in 2020. Uh, which is why uh, one more reason why this conversation matters. Uh, and, you know, I, I take Elliot's cautionary note, uh, but I think we should hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Uh, if, if something with a low probability but a very high negative impact uh, comes to pass, it would be a dereliction of political duty for those who have the ability to think it through and act in different ways to mitigate the damage. Don't don't do so between now and November. And fortunately, there are many knowledgeable individuals and groups who are working on different aspects of this problem. The question is a practical one. Namely, with only 124 days to go until the election, whether the states are going to be able to get their acts together in time to prevent various uh, horrible outcomes. Uh, And I have to say that uh, I am more worried about a one-week delay in the actual count uh, than David is, because I I think this president is capable of sowing a lot of confusion during that process. One more point. The critical actors, and here I'm just extending something that Linda said in a different context, the critical actors on election night and thereafter will be the leaders of the Republican Party. And if they band together and say, Mr. President, we love you, but this was a legitimate election and everybody is obligated to abide by the consequences. And if he's if he's isolated in the White House like Captain Quig with his marbles in the stateroom, uh, then that's one thing. You know, if if Republican leaders, starting with Mitch McConnell but not ending there, do anything to fan the flames of doubt, they will be responsible for the consequences along with the president. Yeah, I, may I add one? I, I think that's those are the 
points are well taken. Um, I, I would just add um, to uh, respond to Elliot, you know, even if this election is a big victory for the Democrats, um, I don't, I, I still don't rule out the possibility of confusion and mayhem around the election. Um, if we recall just the, many of the primaries that we've seen this year, and of course the disaster that happened in the Iowa caucuses, um, all kinds of um, malfeasance and uh, and 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 uh, stupidity is possible, and especially you know just ordinary mistakes because very 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 more many more mail-in ballots are going to have to be counted than in a normal year. Plus, you're going to have fewer elderly. Um, uh, volunteers, and they are usually the bulk of the uh, force that that counts our uh, counts our ballots and 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 man's uh, election polling centers and so forth. So I think it's right to expect a certain amount of mayhem and confusion. And I do think that and this is something that Bill mentioned in his column. The press has a really important role here because expectations are going to be key. If people know going in that it may take a while, that it may take days to get a good solid count, I think the chances for um, mischief being uh, stoked are diminished. So, Mona, if I if I could just say, I, I you know I don't really disagree with anything. This this may just be that uh, you know the, the dean of a school of international uh, affairs probably doesn't have a whole lot to contribute to uh, ensuring the uh, cleanliness of, of American elections. But, but, but you know, I, I guess the American elections have always tended to be kind of messy if you look throughout our past. So I'm, uh, I, I mean, I share all the concerns and I, I do think, you know, what you've pointed out about the press, uh, the point that was made earlier about the leaders of the Republican Party, those are all those are all critical, but I guess I'm just trying to step back a little bit and say, you know, what is the nature of the political moment we're in? And I have to say, I just find it very hard, not just to imagine Trump recovering popularity, but in some ways, even recovering the uh, kind of poise, if that's the right word, uh, or the self-confidence that enabled him to be a very effective candidate the last time around. Hmm. Fair enough. Okay, we are now going to turn to some reflections on July 4th, two days from now. Um, and um, I've asked you each to, um, to give me your thoughts on um, reasons for optimism or celebration or... Um, Something about the coming holiday that uh, that can cheer us up, even though we are facing plague, hysteria, hysteria from both the left and the right in some respects, economic troubles, and uh, obviously extreme polarization. So let us begin with David. Yeah, this is a tough one, Mona, but I think I think we can do it. I, okay. I, think we can. Um, I I am optimistic, uh, and I and I choose to be optimistic, and it is a conscious choice. Part of it is based on the past, which is we as a country may think we're in really tough times now, and I keep hearing that this is the worst it's ever been. We have to remember we had an actual civil war, and we not only survived, but ultimately we thrived after that. So I choose optimism because without it, it's easy for 
skepticism to descend into cynicism, and cynicism tends to block out a sense of hope. Without a sense of hope, there's no spur to action to improve ourselves and help others. So choose to be optimistic about something this 4th of July. Okay. Linda? Well, you know, one of the things that has always inspired me about America is that we are a country that is based around an ideal. And that ideal has not always been perfectly lived or perfectly achieved. But the fact that we do still seem to believe in the ideals of freedom, equal opportunity, uh, the rule of law, uh, I think that is worth uh, contemplating. And I guess I agree with David that when we talk about this as being the worst of times, I think that's an exaggeration. I mean, even the economic decline we've seen, sure, the numbers have been uh, dramatic, but this is nothing like the Great Depression. Uh, for those of us who had parents who lived through that depression, uh, who, who know that people actually went really, in large numbers, went hungry, uh, that people were out of work for years and did not have that kind of hope. This is something where- They we were out of work and they didn't have unemployment insurance right. or any no kind of- net. No safety yes. net, right. I right. mean, so, so uh, you know, um, and, and even in terms of the deaths we've seen and, and the, uh, the concerns we have about this uh, killer that is silent, uh, the fact is that the nation and the world is united in uh, trying to find a cure. Uh, people are, for the most part, acting uh correctly. I mean, you know, maybe it's true that in Texas, people are not donning masks, but I can tell you when I go out in Silver Spring, and I live in a very uh, diverse community, uh, low income as well as high income people, everybody has on a mask. Um, and people are interested in protecting each other. And one of the things that I've delighted in, in my walks around my neighborhood, is that we still have a sense of community. People sit on the porches and they talk to you as you walk by, as I do with my dog and my granddaughter. And, you know, that makes me think this is a very different kind of society than, than exists in many places in the world. Even though we're, I live in a big city, uh, there is a, still a sense of small town community in places. And I think that's something to focus on and to celebrate. And by the way, I also see lots of American flags hanging in my neighborhood, which is also very encouraging to me. Thank you. Elliot. Um, so I, I would associate myself with the, with those remarks because uh, I also live in Silver Spring and have exactly the same um, uh, same experience. But I, I would, I'm a long-term optimist about the United States and always will be. And what I would urge people to do is focus on the moment of July 4th, 1776, plague. There was a smallpox epidemic that practically wiped out one of the two major uh, American armies, the one in uh, the north. Uh, it was just before things were about to go really dark. And there were plenty of people who were not committed to the cause of American independence. And, and then let's think about the fact that the declaration is written by a, a man who understood that the thing he was writing was going to blow up the institution, which gave him a very comfortable life, and which he could never fully repudiate, and that's, of course, slavery. I mean, Jefferson couldn't live as he did without slavery. Um, and yet there's that document, and we know that it's that document which inspires Lincoln and in some ways gets us to the Civil War and beyond. 
So I, I think uh, as we reflect on that particular moment uh, and we realize how much we've endured and how much the values in the Declaration still resonate with us when we read them aloud, as I hope everybody does um, on July 4th, there's every reason in the world to be optimistic because there's nothing else like it on the planet. Yes. Thank you. Bill Galston. Well, the 4th of July celebrates not just uh, an event, but the document that is the capstone of that event. Uh, It's not just that we declared independence, it's why we did so. And the answer to that question, why, uh, has shaped the United States ever since. As long as we regard our founding principles as sound and only our practices and our institutions as unsound and in need of reform, there is ample cause for hope. The question is whether the next generation will see the Declaration of Independence and what it stands for as a norm or as a fraud. Hmm. And to the extent that there's even a tinge of pessimism in my outlook, it lies in the fear uh, that substantial numbers of young Americans will come to see the Declaration of Independence as a you know, as not only a cloak for inequality and injustice, but in some ways a facilitator uh, that, you know, that the, for example, that the, the commitment to individual liberty may stand in the way of the kind of coercive collective action uh, that many of them believe may be necessary in order to put right the wrongs of the country. So uh, Martin Luther King uh, called the Declaration of Independence and its principles a promissory note that it was now the obligation of the United States to redeem. That's that's exactly right in my view, and it's a very hopeful view, because King was saying there's nothing wrong with our principles. The harm and the wrong lies in the gap between our principles and our practices. As long as we continue to use the Declaration as the norm against which our practices and institutions should be judged, the future is bright. If if we ever cease to do so, I'm afraid that our country will have a very bad future. Um, You've all been wonderfully eloquent. Um, My contribution is a little uh, more... um, uh, contemporary, I am encouraged. Um, well, let me back up and say that uh, if we recall from the period 2015 and 2016 uh, during the Republican primary, it's this this meme circulated, LOL, laugh out loud, nothing matters. And it was an ironic sort of cynical response to the idea that no matter what Donald Trump said, no matter how outrageous, how much of a departure from decency and the honorable practice of politics it was, his poll ratings didn't drop. He went from strength to strength. And for a very long time, it seemed that 
for at least a good portion, a too large a portion of the American public, um, none of his uh, horrors penetrated. It seemed that nothing mattered. And, um, and, I, and I was really um, encouraged by the fact that when the murder of, Floyd, of George Floyd happened, you saw this outpouring of, of outrage um, from ordinary Americans, and they were united. It was people of every race and uh, background marching together to say, this is not what we see ourselves as. This is, this is some, we are better than this. We believe in higher things. We believe in, a, in, in human dignity. And it was a rebuke to Trumpism with its, you know, big lie and LOL, nothing matters. It was saying, nope, things, some things matter and, and we've, we've had it. <laughs> um, and so strangely enough for, for this conservative, um, seeing those marchers, many of whom believe things I do not believe and I actually think would be harmful if they were ever put into policy, uh, like abolishing the police. Um, but nevertheless, I think the basic impulse there was a good and decent and all American one, one that showed that the enduring, that the principles that this country was founded upon and doesn't always live up to frequent, well, never has fully lived up to, um, still animate people's hearts. And, uh, I found that an optimistic thing. All right. Now, final topic, something that we noticed and wanted to bring attention to. Um, let's go in reverse order. Bill, you first. Uh, sure. Uh, earlier today, uh, the Gallup organization released a survey. And here's what it found. At the end of the first week of June, 30% of the American people said that the coronavirus situation was getting worse. By the end of the fourth week of June, that 30% had risen to 65%. The month of June has been a hinge moment in public perception of the coronavirus. Uh, they had allowed themselves to hope uh, that the downward trend would continue, uh, that they could reopen uh, everything and go back to business as usual. And in the month of June, indeed, in just three short weeks, they completely changed their mind about that. We are now in a new phase of the coronavirus crisis where people understand uh, that more fundamental changes are going to be needed and that the time required to get out of this mess is going to be much more protracted than they had allowed themselves to hope even a month ago. Elliot. Uh, so for change, I'll be more pessimistic. Uh, there was a story um, about the... Uh, renaming of a U.S. Coast Guard cutter called the Taney, uh, which is tied up, I believe, in Baltimore Harbor. It's, uh, at least in, in the report, I haven't confirmed this, it's the last vessel that was, uh, I suppose, uh, the, well, the last vessel that was um, 
the float at, uh, that survived the Pearl Harbor attack. It was named after Justice Taney, of course, the uh, author of the Dred Scott decision. Um, and it's being renamed. And that just struck me at first, it struck me as crazy, but it, it's, um, you know, this question of naming things is tremendously important. And uh, this was one of those cases where I think somebody, undoubtedly for good motives, decided that they were going to change history because, after all, it was called the Taney when it was at uh, Pearl Harbor. Um, and I think this points to a, a, a larger set of debates that we, we have to have on this issue of, you know, when do monuments come down, when do names change, but, but also how we grapple with our history, how we grapple with our past. Yes. Um, and uh, not by mob action. I think everyone on this podcast would agree. Um, Linda. One of the things that uh, concerns me uh, right now is that uh, I think it's great that whites and blacks are joining together and focusing on uh, real instances of injustice and discrimination. But I fear that, as often happens, um, that the pendulum will swing so far in the other direction that we will do things that will not necessarily help. And one of the biggest worries I have is that in response to the uh, George Floyd killing, that you'll see efforts to promote such things as racial quotas in hiring uh, and other things that ostensibly will reduce uh, violence. Well, there really isn't good social science evidence of that. And part of, um, part of the problem right now is that those who in any way want to do real social science research and point out, as Roland Fryer, who himself is African-American and is an economist at Harvard, has done, um, that there isn't good evidence that there is a, a higher chance of uh, being killed if you are uh, a Black uh, individual who comes in contact with the police. I mean, his research said there may be racism, uh, but we cannot, in fact, prove it by our research. And now there are actual attempts to shut down that kind of research. And uh, a professor, Stephen Sue, at, um, uh, at Michigan State University recently lost his uh, role as being uh, vice president of research and innovation at the university uh, because, in fact, he had pointed out that there was less uh, likely, uh, you know, that, the, that this research did not, in fact, uh, demonstrate that there was less likelihood of being shot um, if you were white than if you were black. And I think that's very dangerous. Uh, there was an article about this uh, in the College Fix and so I would recommend that uh, people think about this, look about it, and uh, look at it, and um, and be aware that um, coming up with bad solutions like uh, efforts to rate uh, to erase systemic uh, racism and uh, put in place such things as reparations are not the right way to go about solving the problem. Um, Linda, I I agree in part and disagree in part. Um, the um... It's true, as far as I can tell, that the data do not show that um, African-Americans are more likely to be shot and killed by police than white Americans or other races. But 
the data is abundant that African Americans are far more likely to be hassled by police, That's far more correct. likely to be That's arrested correct. for marijuana or other small yeah. offenses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that has a cumulative effect on people's psyches and how they feel about the way they are respected or disrespected in this country. But I guess my worry is that if we do things like, you know, put in place quotas or we defund the police, that's another favorite. If we in fact withdraw police forces from uh, minority neighborhoods, uh, we're actually right, right, right. putting at yeah. risk yeah. Uh, people who no, are that's... more likely to be victims of, of crimes. Course. Of course. And, the, and, and I, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that that just will never happen. But okay, David Priest. Yes, mine will be short and to the point. I'm not going to highlight a specific article. I'm going to highlight a creator of many articles because I think his work is so compelling, uh, especially with what we've seen in recent weeks. Bill, I know you are already familiar with him, but I encourage everybody to check out the work of Dr. Ray Sean Ray, a fellow in governance oh, yeah. studies at Brookings who is a sociologist, but has done uh, wonderful research and is a wonderful public communicator on the mechanisms that maintain racial and social inequality. You can follow him if you're on Twitter at Sociologist Ray, but I just want to encourage everyone to broaden your scope of information on this issue with someone who knows how to communicate insights very well. Excellent. Um, I wanted to mention a, a piece by someone that um, Elliot was a, someone who was a student of Elliot Cohn's actually at uh, SICE. Uh, he wrote a piece, his name is Shay Katiri. He wrote a piece for The Bulwark, um, and it's about the nominee, the Trump nominee for Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. This is a very important post. Um, it was uh, held in the past by people like Freddie Clay, Eric Edelman, Michelle Flournoy, uh, has tremendous responsibility for relations with NATO, for counter-narcotics policy, special operations, all kinds of very important things. It's for uh, strategic planning purposes and so forth. Well, Trump has removed um, the person who had held the post because this was somebody who had approved the aid to Ukraine um, and and suggested as his replacement uh, a former brigadier general whose name is Anthony Tata. And this man's qualifications are that, um, I mean, other than he was general, but, uh, but he's a, a Fox News uh, commenter and he's a Trump cheering section. And um, he tweets things like this. He said that uh, Obama was a Muslim, secret Muslim. Uh, when uh, Trump criticized former CIA chief John Brennan, Tata uh, posted a tweet saying, quote, time to pick, this is at Brennan, Time to pick your poison. Firing squad, public hanging, life sentence as prison, B-I-T-C-H, or just suck on your pistol, your call. Hashtag treason, hashtag sedition, hashtag crossfire hurricane, hashtag Obamagate. He also accused uh, former President Obama and Hillary Clinton of treason and sedition, and he called Nancy Pelosi a violent extremist. So I would just urge all fair-minded Republicans who want to think that Donald Trump, though he may be a little rude, uh, is basically a normal Republican 
to think about appointments like this one. And I thank all of you for joining us on Beg to Differ. Thanks once again to David Priest for joining us, his second uh, guest slot, or maybe even your third. I'm not sure, David, but but we love having you. I love being and here. To, thank you, Mona. And to Elliot Cohn, who I think had to drop off, but uh, fantastic having him. And uh, we appreciate all of you uh, tuning in. You can... Uh, reach me at mcharon1 at gmail.com if you want to make suggestions uh, or provide uh, feedback. And we will be with you again next week. Thanks so much. 